My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And this week, hooah, we're talking about Al Pacino. It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Dunkachino? Do you know that they wanted uh, not Dunkin' Donuts? Starbucks. Mm-hmm. He'd say Frat Pacino, which makes more sense. But Dunkachino's funnier. Dunkachino's funnier. And also, like an Adam Sandler movie at Starbucks? No, I don't think so. Adam Sandler's the, the working man. He's the people's filmmaker. Now, do you have a very strong opinion about Al Pacino? Or have you ever had a strong opinion about Al Pacino? Well, I was thinking about this. I take Al Pacino for granted a bit. He's been around for longer than I have. He's constantly worked throughout my life. You're always seeing Al Pacino and stuff. He's in so many classics and you just kind of take him for granted. And also as actors get older, you know, their range becomes a little more limited. Sometimes it becomes possible to define a guy like Al Pacino by some of his tics, by some of his uh, shtick, the hoo you know, I want Tracy dead, that kind of stuff. Yell acting. That people associate with late period Al Pacino. Yeah, and sometimes in my head there have been times when he can become a little bit of a joke. But he shouldn't be, because watching the movies again this week, it's like, this guy, he's one of the best to ever do it. What can you say? If you grew up in the 90s, it felt like it was defined parody-wise with parodies of Scent of a Woman, which is so funny because no one watches this movie anymore. Oh, you say that, but it's on every, every streaming... streaming platform. Yes, I discovered that myself. Some... And it was like, this is wild. How is it on Netflix, uh, YouTube, like Google, uh, Amazon Prime? Like, they need Scent of a Woman. And a lot of people have logged it on Letterboxd, so people are watching this movie. We bring up Scent of a Woman because... It's notable for one thing. This is the Al Pacino episode. It broke Al Pacino, some would say. <laughs> this is the Al Pacino episode. We wanted to talk about some of Al Pacino. I don't think we have to waste a lot of time explaining who he is at this no. point. You know him. The Godfather, mm. Scarface, Attica, Hua, Latte Light. <laughs> this whole trial is out of sight. Do you think Al Pacino knew all of the quotes that he was saying when he sung that Dunkachino <laughs> song? Oh, we should have structured the episode through the Dunkachino music number and every oh. line that he says. We would then break it apart. But... They pull me back. Back in with hazelnut too <laughs> <laughs> okay so what's great about that musical number is it's so low rent too like the mix isn't quite there it sounds tinny and small <laughs> like it feels incomplete which just makes it that much funnier it's possible we've already lost some people with this Dunkachino is that great scene from the adam sandler film jack and jill where the whole plot of the movie is that adam sandler is a dunkin donuts marketing executive who's trying to get al pacino to do a commercial al pacino playing himself yes and al pacino falls in love with Adam Sandler's sister, also played by Adam Sandler. Jack and Jill, not good. Every scene was Al Pacino trying to have sex with Adam Sandler, gold. And this is why I shouldn't take Al Pacino for granted, because in that movie, he rocks he's mm-hmm. amazing totally committed and totally uh self-effacing as well lots of funny jokes about his oscars in the film and also here's the thing robert de niro we've all said that his late period is not very good a lot of lazy performances and a lot of lazy movies yeah he, he, robert de niro he sits in the chair he frowns because that kind of subtle intensity is what you think of when you think of robert de niro which takes very little effort and de niro can be very good still i want to fuck a horse <laughs> Dirty Grandpa, case in point, he can be wonderful. Al Pacino, I think, yes, he can be shticky, but he's, with maybe one or two exceptions, never not compelling. There was an interview that he did from a couple years ago where he talked about why he took so many bad scripts, in his opinion. And I mean, I in his opinion, money, yeah. money. <laughs> but he also said he liked the challenge of trying to make it better through his performance. And he even said, I failed. I don't know why I keep doing this because it's not going to work. But he liked the kind of obstacles. Like, if I show up 
will the movie get better just by me committing to it? I think most of the time it does, though. I think if you watch Righteous Kill, you'll find that it's better than it would have been if he wasn't in it. <laughs> well, Robert De Niro is like snoring beside him throughout the entire movie. So, Scent of a Woman, getting back to it. We wanted to watch this one because this is the one for which he finally won his only Oscar. And he beat Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. It is absurd that this is Al Pacino's only Oscar. Well, everyone has always understood this as the Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Yes. But then watching the movie... He's I, the best part of Sin of a Woman! So, yes, he is, undeniably. But then watching it, I realized, oh yeah, this was machine-generated to get him an Oscar. There has never been more of a... Yes, it's a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, but you can imagine all the idiots in the Academy watching this movie and being like, fuck, this is, this is acting. So, Sin of a Woman, if you have never seen it, because, I don't know... Why would you? You're, you're under... <laughs> five years old it's about you know screen dynamo chris o'donnell uh robin himself who is at a prep school and takes on a job during thanksgiving of taking care of al pacino now when the movie played number one i was like he is not qualified for this job uh he is though because like imagine you've got a salad that has one you know, really potent ingredient that is supposed to basically no, I mean, be the as salad. a character, not in oh, the context of the movie. Because in the context of the movie, Chris O'Donnell, I can understand why he was cast because he is literally like an empty void in the film. Well, yeah, getting back to my salad metaphor, he's tofu. Mm. You know, he's there to absorb the flavor of what's around him. But I watched Heat this week, and I think that Al Pacino works best when he's surrounded by actors that are very good, intense, charismatic, not in the same register that he is. I agree. And Scent of a Woman, I think, I found it interesting just as a case study and how good can you be in a movie this bad? The movie is two and a half hours long. I, I hated this movie, <laughs> even though it is a very competent movie. It's too competent. It's it's such a piece of machinery. It's like every scene that you think is going to be in it is in it in exactly its place. It's like a shotgun blast of 90s dramatic filmmaking as well. Those kind of like golden hues takes place during the fall. It has a like awful score every time the theme played i was like oh i hate it so much fucking horrible so anyway back to the plot chris o'donnell he's a poor boy at this prep school he's in on a scholarship he's surrounded by rich kids including a young philip seymour hoffman great what if he had been in the chris o'donnell role instead of uh, chris o'donnell I, I think he would have been better I, I betcha he did audition for it and like the ones who didn't get it got to be pushed to the side and got to be the evil preppy boys i was thinking of like would this movie be better if there was like a young michael j fox that was in the Chris O'Donnell role? Like if they brought intensity, some kind of personality to it? Maybe, or maybe it's just, you know... They, you need that wet blanket? They that... wanted it to be the Al show. <laughs> yeah, and it is the Al show. So, so so anyway, he's at this prep school. Chris O'Donnell and Philip Seymour Hoffman both witness a big prank that was done to the evil Dean. Is he an evil Dean, Well, though? he's a snobby Dean. I think he's pretty evil. He is what evil. What he does... I mean, let's say, he's a Dean, so automatically he's evil. But from the get-go, the preppy kids are like, he doesn't deserve that jaguar that he got given by the board. That's why they're angry at him. That's why they pull a prank on him. Yeah, as if any of them are better. <laughs> no, they're all terrible. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all the upper echelon. And like this Dean, a prank happens. Chris O'Donnell witnesses it and he's brought forward to the Dean. And the Dean's like, you got to tell me who did it. Or number one, I will expel you and you won't get a recommendation. All expenses paid. I was going to give you to Harvard. And in fact, on Monday after the weekend, we are going to hold a big big snitch event where we are going to put you and Philip Seymour Hoffman on stage in front of the whole school and you are going to snitch. Isn't anyone in power beside the Dean being like, what is going on? <laughs> like, what, what is this for? Why is there a whole 
whole snitch event, like a a Madison Square Garden event for snitching. Anyway, so Chris O'Donnell has this hanging over his head. If he doesn't snitch, uh, he's going to be doomed forever. He's not going to go to Harvard. He's going to be working at a gas station for the rest of his life. So he takes Al Pacino, who plays a manic pixie blind man. (laughs) I mean, his first scene is so off-putting and not the way I think they wanted it to be. (laughs) Where he's like, how's your skin? How's your skin? Al Pacino's sitting in golden rays in the corner of the room. The woman who takes care of him, who I believe his niece, right? Because Al Pacino's her uncle, is like, gives Chris O'Donnell no instructions. It's just like, yeah, go in there and, you know, he'll be your best friend by the end of the weekend. (laughs) Chris O'Donnell takes Pacino to New York. We're going to have a big weekend. I I forget why he takes him to New York. I might have been zoned out at that part. Uh, Chris O'Donnell is told by Pacino, just take me to New York. I think he wants to pick up a call girl or something like that. That's right. But but there may be darkness lurking under his surface. uh, Al Pacino's, I'm going to kill myself when this weekend's over. That's right. So you think Pacino, he's a funny blind man. He does cool, unexpected blind man things like he tangos with a woman. He drives at one point. Wacky, hilarious stuff. This is not your grandpa's blind man. He's got darkness inside. He does have darkness. And just when you expect it to happen, just when the screenwriting manual tells you this is when it's going to happen, he visits his estranged family, where his brother, played by Bradley Whitford, (laughs) delivers a stinging monologue where he says, you know, you know how this man became blind. He's not as wacky as you think he is. Actually, he put his whole platoon juggling grenades. And I thought that sounds pretty wacky to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's no more or less dangerous than driving a car in Manhattan. That's true. Yeah. He didn't learn his lesson at all. (laughs) Nope. And Al Pacino has his big Oscar moment that I'm sure they showed during the clips. Oh, where he's shameless. Like, <laughs> he's like, I'm a bad man. Finally, the weekend ends and Chris O'Donnell goes back to his prep school where he's on trial, where he's at this kangaroo court on trial for the crime of being too good a boy. Yeah, for not snitching on his friends. Because they know Chris O'Donnell had nothing to do with this. They know. Yeah, he didn't have anything to do with it. But if he does not snitch then he will be doomed to a life of poverty. Poverty. So he's on stage, him and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman is there with his titan of industry father and his father's whispering in his ear and Hoffman's like, well, um, I, th- I think it might have been those three boys. And, and so the evil Dean's on stage in front of the whole audience. And he says, very good. Now, how about you, Chris O'Donnell? I would say, Chris O'Donnell, snitch on those assholes. They, they would burn you in a second. Well, listen, I may not know what's right, but what I know is that Chris O'Donnell is a man of principle. And that's what you, Justin, don't understand. <laughs> You're sending him on a path. So Al Pacino bursts into the uh, kangaroo court. And I believe that this was an improvised speech. I remember reading that we, somewhere. I, I don't think that's true. That can't be true. It's pretty rambling and long. Like, <laughs> he goes on some weird discretions as well. Well, it was probably improvised no, over a period. Yeah. yeah. Like, they let Al Pacino go. And they're like, you have to hit these points. And Al Pacino is just flailing. It's like, and he wins over the audience, like, so much. This scene is shameless. <laughs> He's in front of the he whole... He might as well have put on, like, a red nose, <laughs> Patch Adams style, and been like, honk, honk. <laughs> the end of it he just goes on stage he says i'm chris o'donnell's new dad so i'm here to represent him why are the dads on stage with the boys i don't know according to this kangaroo court they have to be and so the evil dean is there he's got his gavel and he's like sir you're out of order but if you know one thing about al pacino you'll I'm know i'm out of order you're out of order the, the whole damn system's out of order That's when right. it's al pacino on trial and justice for all <laughs> and al- attica out of sight <laughs> 
and Al and Al's like, Your Honor, this boy is so good, and and what a rotten school this is, and this is the best boy, and yeah. it goes on. If for, he, if there was any respect, won the respect, not turning against bad men. It's about keeping the status quo of the rich protect the rich. <laughs> they cannot be injured. And what I know is that this is a good boy, and then it goes on like that for ten minutes, and then everyone applauds. Yeah, and, they jump to their feet and applaud. And then the school's judiciary committee. And by the way, the whole time, the evil dean's on the stage. This guy's gavel in his hand. He's like, sir, order in this court. But no, there's no. He's lost. <laughs> he's lost the audience. The evil dean doesn't have the audience. And the whole judiciary committee, who should be in the evil dean's pocket. they Oh, say, yeah. The they, evil dean should own them. They say no. They say no. Instantly. Cr- Chris O'Donnell's the dean now. <laughs> yeah, they might as well this have is been his like, school. The jaguar is now Chris O'Donnell's. <laughs> and it's all thanks to... Uh, Al Pacino. Yeah, who essentially, I assume, like, ascends to heaven or walks on water at the end. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is the Scent of a Woman episode. Al Pacino's performance, though, in this film. That's what we're talking about. Not the context that it's in. Well, it's hard to divorce the two. Mm-hmm. Because I think, like the movie, the, his performance is shameless. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, I liked it. Anytime it was on screen, I'm like, I like watching Al Pacino do his thing. I mean, at the end, at the end of the movie, when he's doing that 10 minute monologue, how can you not enjoy it on some level? I mean, this this is a man with presence. This is a man who can act. Well, I think that a man who can act is important. It's also he loves acting. Robert De Niro yeah. doesn't seem to love acting. It seems like something he fell into, and this is his income. Well, so Robert De Niro is a great craftsman. Yes. Like, there's no better craftsman. I don't know if he, I mean, I don't know how much he loves it anymore. Like, I don't think, exactly. Like, I don't think Robert De Niro jumps out of bed excited to go act, like, you know, on a film. He's a very cerebral actor, and even in Robert De Niro's best movies, you don't get, like, the joy of acting. Mm -hmm. You don't sense that that he's he's loving it. He's plumbing the depths of his soul. Well, you watch Taxi Driver, you feel that he's enjoying this process that he's committed to what's happening you see him in i can't think of any robert de niro film that came out in the last five years it's not bad grandpa something like the irishman something like taxi driver they're very well, he's there he's they're committed very, they're yeah. very internalized performances that's yeah that's de niro thing but al pacino loves like hitting the boards Arr. he loves giving you a show he loves yeah. showmanship he's like Shaq. he's just like dunking and the board's exploding <laughs> i didn't do a lot of work on this episode in terms of research obviously but i did do a lot of work in terms of hours devoted to watching the movie Especially when Set of a Woman's two and a half hours long. Because I watched three movies, all of which were getting close to three hours. Mm-hmm. I watched, uh, I didn't tell you this, I watched The Godfather. Oh, you did? You yeah. popped in, I assume that 4K new Blu-ray gave it a spin? Yeah, I thought, you know, when am I going to watch it next? The Godfather's a movie I watch every eight to ten years. And I watched Heat, so there you go. We I watched covered... it too. Oh, you did? Yeah. Man, you did your homework on I, this I one. Saw, well, I wanted to Whoa. watch that, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about The Godfather. Well, I feel like The Godfather and Serpico are two movies, because I watched that one for this episode, mm-hmm. that are very familiar Al Pacino acting styles. That during the 70s period, Al Pacino had a certain kind of hook to his performances, what you would cast him as. Well, whenever I see those 70s Pacino performances, like The Godfather, like Serpico, I'm always, I don't know why I am, but I'm always surprised that he's so under. Understated. Well, he's like the simmering intensity. Yeah, and when he yells in those movies, it means something. Yeah, well, like when you think of like Dog Day Afternoon, when he does like the big thing where he gets the crowd going, mm-hmm. or you think of Serpico when he's like freaking out, and especially that Serpico, a Sidney Lumet film that's about a guy who's like, what? Police are corrupt. Literally every police officer in New York, <laughs> every department is corrupt, and Serpico is jumping from one to the other, not even trying 
trying to root out corruption at first just to be in a department that's not corrupt. Can't find it. So he decides, <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to have to do something about the it. The whole damn system's out of order. <laughs> that's right. And he has a lot of difficulty doing the bare minimum. And if you look at his life story, Serpico then had to move away from the United States. Yeah. But Al Pacino in this role, what's great about it is he does have to be that kind of simmering intensity. He is a weird guy. That's one of the things about Serpico that people talk about. Like he wears a big giant hat. Like It's great. It is performance in that movie the way you like see him tearing himself apart from the inside mm-hmm. as it goes along and it's amazing that how he communicates that without doing a whole lot uh, like he has his big freak out moments like there's a point where other officers shoot at him mm-hmm. thinking that he's a criminal or do they right <laughs> and he's like what are you doing what like that's the al pacino you would expect but that is coupled with that kind of al pacino in a room having to listen to people say stuff that he doesn't agree with and he can't just freak out as his kind of acting mechanism man those scenes where he's just sitting in a room listening to somebody who he doesn't like mm-hmm. hearing things he doesn't want to hear that's the stuff i forget about al pacino when i haven't seen these movies in long well that's enough. like the 70s 80s al pacino and then he made a movie called revolution he took a break came back and basically sent the woman as a couple movies after that and that's late period al yeah dick tracy is maybe the unofficial start and son of a woman is the official start of <laughs> Do you late think, Al. like he suffocated and a version of Al Pacino died <laughs> only to be reborn and sent of a woman. You know, here's the thing. I like late Al too. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Irishman of the three central performances, his is the least surprising. But he's so fun to watch in it. When he's tried to do that kind of simmering stuff in junk like Hangman, uh, the movie released by Millennium Films, the people who gave us the Expendables, he's kind of boring because he's like trying. He doesn't really have control of that anymore. Yeah. And something changes when you get older, too. I mean, watching The Godfather again, I mean, the fact that he's so young plays a role in it. Like he's able in that movie to go from being young and inexperienced instead of hopeful and to the point where he's in and he's hardened mm-hmm. by the end of it and he can't be young anymore no you know can't. like your range does get limited as you get older uh the godfather by the way good movie uh, overrated i would say yeah you think so yeah a little bit well, how can it not be at this <laughs> I know, point? The greatest movie <laughs> Anytime someone's like, listen, I saw that new Fast and Furious film. It's no Godfather. And it's like, yeah, okay, Godfather, Citizen Kane. Let's retire both of those. Put the jerseys up on the wall. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, I will say that I had a great time watching The Godfather again. And the two main performances in the film, Marlon Brando and Al Pacino, I was kind of blown away by how wildly different they are. Mm-hmm. Like, Same thing with Heat, though, with uh, it, De Niro and Pacino. Yeah, yeah it's, it's similar. Like in both those movies, you've got one performance that's very stylized very gargoyle-ish. <laughs> and you, and you, Anytime I think of Marlon Brando and Godfather, I just think of Mafia. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> just with the orange in his house, like the big watermelon and Mafia, great stuff. But yes, I completely agree with you. And both of those styles working together, I mean, we didn't even mention like Pacino early on in his career, he's like, I'm method, I'm method. This is the way that I approach it because I want to get a reality there. I find it a little difficult to explain why Al Pacino was so good in those early movies too because so much of it seems almost mystical. Like mm. a lot of it is just his his own charisma as a person there's yeah. a certain amount that he's clearly like born with because like even something like cruising where he's very mm. kind of understated it just he's simmering like almost boiling and on screen look at chris o'donnell this is one of the things that son of a woman is useful for you've got a movie star you've got not a movie, movie star, star yes. they're next to each other and chris o'donnell not that he's without talent not that he's without some skill he's been on um one of those like navy uh, ncis or one of those for like 15 years good for him <laughs> yes. i'm very happy for him that he's getting work but he cannot simmer Mm -hmm. he just doesn't have it in him yeah uh but al pacino can actually son of a woman i thought was interesting to watch too just with the other ones because i realized this week how important his eyes are Mm -hmm. 
in The Godfather, the stillness of his eyes at times, the stillness of his whole body and just like a small move of the eyes can mean so much. And in Son of a Woman, it's an interesting acting exercise because like he's got blind man's eyes. So Mm, so he's never making contact with the people that he's talking with. Yeah. And he has to communicate a lot through everything else on his face and his voice. So, you know, I'm sure he took the acting exercise seriously. (laughs) Give the Oscar to Pacino for Son of a Woman, Will Sloan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, even when you think of something like Scarface, which is not a wild Al Pacino, but well, it's think, a pretty wild. No, Al I know, but he's also simmering in that movie in a way that like he can't anymore. He does big oh, wild. True. People think of the ending right. of uh, Scarface because that's the biggest, you know, ah, you know, say hello to my little friend. But like that film is also a lot of Pacino just staring at people, trying to be intimidating because he has to be more than he is from like a monetary standpoint. Uh, I'm just gonna throw this out there too. I don't know. I don't have any conclusion on this, but the fact that he was so Italian, the fact that he was part of a new generation of movie stars like De Niro, who were... (laughs) Al Pacino's Italian! (laughs) What? But, like, they were more ethnic than Mm. the stars had been before. Like, Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, uh, fucking Rock Hudson, I don't know who was the star before that. Like, I don't have a point about this, but I just think it's interesting. It's like, did that add in some way to the mystique that they had? The fact that there was something almost dangerous about them because they were perceived as more more ethnic? Yeah, they didn't have, like, a mid-Atlantic accent that's, like, non-threatening. It's like, oh yeah, everybody has this when they're on screen. Yeah, there was something that was perceived as, like, raw earthy about them but it still exists though even when you look at it now like it's not something that is culturally uh, within the context of its release because you look at the godfather and his performance even removed from oh yeah this is the best movie of all time it still makes the movie work like i'm trying to think like they probably wanted to cast other people than pacino in that main role right they probably went through the list and it's like would it have worked the same if it was a different actor probably but it would have been different the intensity of him is what makes it as you know powerful as it is now if we move on to heat uh great movie loved it yeah <laughs> loved it uh oh michael mann uh no controversial opinions here about <laughs> Heat. pacino in that film like such of a woman he often gets caricatured as like this is his big one he's so out there i don't know it works for me there's a scene where he hugs a woman who her daughter just died and it's such an odd moment because it's like the stranger comes and hugs her and it goes on too where he hugs her he lets her go he hugs her again well there are peaks and valleys in the mm-hmm. performance it's not all it's not all dick tracy and which is kind of what we associate with him now and it's those peaks and valleys but also that kind of you know while he was intense in the godfather in the heat he seems almost unbalanced which yeah. is different yeah i mean he's doing a lot with his eyes in that movie. cocaine he's doing a lot with his whole body uh there's a ragged quality to him and like yeah you mentioned de niro they only have like the one scene together compare and contrast of the two of them where one of them is it so just, controlled yeah de niro just like you know head back almost chin tucked in just staring at him like uh shoulders clenched while pacino's like delivering a monologue about a dream that he had and he's into it he's not all out all out there but it's different and both of them together you're like yes even though that's the only scene they share by intercutting between both of them that creates the rhythm that makes heat work so well and pacino represents the law and he's the one who seems more more out of order <laughs> yes, that's right. uh, so it adds tension i to stared it. at injustice for all i'm like i don't want to watch this norman jewison film <laughs> yeah I, I i haven't seen it either and they're both such obviously great actors and in the movie they're, they're having such distinct styles that there's there's a feeling of well what happens when this unstoppable force meets this immovable object mm-hmm. there's a real tension you genuinely kind of don't know who's gonna win as opposed to righteous kill which i've never seen but I'm sure, Will, you spin that one every eight to ten years, right? Oh, I saw it opening weekend. 
<laughs> people were very excited, even though that's one of those films. They're like, who directed this? Oh, it's going to be bad. Uh, did you see 88 Minutes? I did a long time TikTok ago. TikTok Doc. And I don't remember it. Wait, I always get that one confused with 15 Minutes, which is different. That's a De Niro joint. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Man, all those stars, they were in the wilderness when we were growing up. I'm like, what's Harrison Ford in these days? Uh, Hollywood. Um, what's the one? Homicide. It was Josh Hartnett. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a real Brando Pacino <laughs> pairing, isn't it? So Al Pacino, I feel like we've covered basically all the basics because, you know, you got Big Al, you got intense Al and now we're in Big Al he's not going away like when he was in The Irishman do you think Scorsese like that's a performance that he wanted out of Pacino yes mm. I do in The Irishman I think he's used very well too because you know it's like in Heat you know you've got the wild man and then you've got two other performances that are more grounded and who are in Scorsese behind the camera he's like oh man Joe Pesci's not bringing it I want some of that Goodfellas energy <laughs> alright Al you're gonna have to pick up the slack <laughs> and I was like no problem yeah. Now, we only know that hoo-ha thing because it's like everywhere in cartoons in the 90s. Like, The Critic, if you've ever watched that show, they do... 15 Scent of a Woman jokes. I mean, having never seen Scent of a Woman before, I was really excited to hear him say hoo-ah. He says it like 10 times. I laughed every time. Yeah. I was just having a great time with that. It's that and Rain Man jokes. Like, that's yeah. what the 90s were composed of. Yeah. So Al Pacino, still good. I feel like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, we tend to kind of dismiss him a little bit as a joke or take, now. Or take, take him take for, for granted. granted. Yes. Yeah. But he is good. He's always been good. He's still good. Maybe he's not quite as good as he used to be, but Even he's still good. Even though you look at like, oh, Merchant of Venice. I don't need to see that movie. I know what it's going to be. <laughs> Shylock is my name. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Tony Marshall. And he goes, hey, Justin. Sorry, Will. I'm a fellow <laughs> struggling filmmaker. I think this is a question. Uh, you can still jump in, though. I'm a fellow struggling filmmaker who just finished a music video I made to look like 8mm with filters in the edit from DSLR footage. I like it, but no, it's not as good as actually shooting on film stock. As you yourself have lamented, the move to digital from directors like Argento and Zalowski, as well as just flat lack of texture the medium has, have you discovered any ways to create more textured images without film? I ask because it's cheaper and most tutorials say film look to mean Marvel movies. P.S. Why do American Canadians know who Benny Hill is? <laughs> I cannot emphasize enough that he's completely forgotten in the UK and is never mentioned in a single comedy documentary, even when the context of 70s bad, dated, or offensive shows. Yet late 20s to 40s North Americans seem to use him and his theme tune reference for UK comedy next to Monty Python all the time to the extent I first heard him in a 2000 Simpsons episode why this and who's to blame I would say PBS probably yeah wrote. I mean Benny Hill was widely exported over mm -hmm. here it played on TV here much more than I don't know who else do they have in Britain Ross Abbott huh that's one for our Norman British. Norman Wisdom? <laughs> That's one for our British. Uh, Norman Cubby Brown or whatever <laughs> yeah. that guy's name is. I'm saying all these names. I'm just getting like blank. Like, <laughs> I don't know who they are, what they did. I throw Norman Wisdom around because supposedly some people in the UK love him. Well, Matthew he, Kumar is a fan. And is he's he a very Jerry Lewis style presence. Yeah. I saw a movie and it was a lot of Lewis style gags in it. Now, as far as how do you bring textures to movies when you have to shoot on DSLR? Number one, forget about shooting on film. You're not going to do it. It's too expensive unless you have a production company that is paying for for it and i'm assuming if you're writing this that's not going to happen when it comes to shooting on digital i think the one thing that gives digital away that kind of flat affectless look is a lack of intention and i've talked about this before that was digital it's very easy to like cover your bases shoot everything from multiple angles and edit it in post afterwards to get like you know the best version of a scene when you do that what happens is you also get a kind of tv feel to it like that's how tv shows are shot because they just don't have that much time 
When you want kind of authority, even beyond just texture on the film to not make it feel cheap and digital, just go in it with intent. When you shoot with intent of how you frame things and how you edit things, I think that's even more important than like, well, I want that grain. The thing about grain though, that's great when you have like, you shoot on film is that if we saw most of the regional horror films that we love on digital, we'd be like, these are terrible. And we know that because they keep making horror movies on digital and we <laughs> and don't like them. The same. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm like, oh, this is great. I love the textures and the feel of it. If I had the exact same film digitally, I mean, number one, it's removed from the context it was made in, blah, blah, blah. It would not feel the same. And you can't get that though. Don't try to imitate it. There's nothing worse than watching a film and being like, ugh, they're trying to recreate film footage, like uh, like a texture using digitally. Except maybe eight millimeter, because that is such a damaged format, like eight, super eight, that you can usually push it far enough that it doesn't feel like, you know, just trying to imitate it. I'm thinking of all those like post Grindhouse movies that came out. Like Hobo with a Shotgun. You know, well, that, that was, was okay. Good. That yeah, was and good. it's not trying to do it in that style. I'm thinking of more like, all, there would be it's like nun bloody nuns on the run or something like that sushi girl did you yeah, ever see that one yeah I'm, and it's just like throwing filters on it and like mm. fake film grain terrible don't do it it's just like a disconnect from it yeah. so just go in with intent and I think that's probably the most important thing you can do from a visual standpoint I mean Will you've also talked about like you know the death of cinema is also just ugly images on screen like that affectless Marvel look well I mean I think uh, some people resist this but I genuinely do think like the switch over from 35 millimeter to digital has played some role in people at least subconsciously not wanting to go to movie theaters because during mm. the pandemic people have spent two years watching things on netflix on some subconscious level they realize the image on netflix is no different than the image in a theater in fact it's probably better because it's like the the bulb in the theater is so fucking bad all the time i mean the argument would be as well especially when it comes to comedies that there's no better feeling than sitting in an audience who's laughing along with the movie oh sure there i mean there are lots of advantages to still seeing movies with audiences but but like like you remember in the 90s and in the 2000s we would go see movies and we just knew that they felt different the image was heavier mm. and it was a different experience and that's not there anymore hey i've talked about this before but i am just baffled that someone at marvel and i feel like because of that it has filtered down to a lot of different big budget productions have decided like no blacks only grays uh. that's what we want to see and it's like just like a milky undefined uncolorless image because colors can't pop if everything is milky and you can see in everything i don't understand why would you do it that way yeah and so don't do it that way and that's something i feel like and we always talk about like what will become nostalgic that like when VHS was being made, people were like, ah, this is terrible. It doesn't look like Phil. Now, when we look back on VHS, like mm, that sweet VHS look like there is a warmth to it that we don't have from these digital images. The thing about these images, there's no warmth at all. If anything, every all of it has been sucked out. I can't imagine nostalgia for them. I can't either, but I mean, we'll like, see. <laughs> HDR, like people talk about, it's like, oh, you get so many different colors. I look at like the Marvel movies in HDR. It's like, it just still looks milky and white and bad. Like, what's going on? Well, movies are going to keep looking worse and worse. And so then we'll look back at, you know, Captain Marvel or something and say, oh, <laughs> oh look at those colors. Wow, they used to be on sets. Wild. <laughs> so our next letter is from AJ Serrano. And he goes, hey, guys, I've always had a soft spot for Steven Spielberg's Always. If only for the sole reason that it was the movie released in my birth year, 1989 by the filmmakers that first influenced my love of, for movies. I've only seen it once and found it to be mediocre. What? But you said you have a soft spot for it. But I doubt I'll ever shake the cozy sentiment I have always had for always. Do you both have an example of a special birth year movie for yourselves? Thanks, AJ. A birth year movie. Yeah, Something that came out the year that you were born that you have a soft spot for even though that you don't love it. 
so I don't, but I will say that I associate Tim Burton's Batman Returns. With, yes. No, no, the, the, <laughs> the fir- first the, Batman. Yeah, the first one because it came out in '89, which was the year I was born. So I link that and the Berlin Wall very closely to my birth. <laughs> I mean, I was born in 87, great year for movie, Raising Arizona came out, Evil Dead 2, nothing bad was happening in 87. The thing about me is that I'm really bad with years with movies. Will is sometimes like a computer when it comes to that, that he could just name, oh yeah, that came out in this year. And I usually give like a blank stare, I'm like, I don't know, what year did it come out of? What's more important to me is like the order it happened in someone's career or mm-hmm. what came before and after. But specific years, mine for numbers just doesn't have that. So I'm sorry if we don't have a very good answer or something that we associate with being, you know, when we were young that we have affinity for. I would, yeah, I would say that there are definitely things that I saw when I was young that are mediocre that I have affection for because like, like what? I, I remember going to see them. Like what? Well, now I can't think of an example, but... I mean, I was trying to think of like films that I saw in a theater as a kid that I would have had affinity for. But when I think back on it, even as a kid, and I said this before, I'm like, this movie's bad. Like Shaq's Kazan. Oh, I know. That I saw theatrically. Uh, I got one. Batman Forever. <laughs> okay, yes. I'll always love that. Oh, really? And love it's, it. it's not, you know, it's <laughs> not a very good movie, but I, I'll always love it. I try to throw myself back of being a kid of being like i must have liked this right like i must have how can you not have liked that movie as a kid i, I mean... was thinking about kazam recently and what's weird about it is like i wanted to see that movie so bad i had no affinity for Shaq. i didn't even know who he was why did i want to see it so badly it's amazing how you can be brainwashed by tv commercials huh like i didn't because i didn't watch basketball i didn't watch any sports but it's like a need to see kazam it was the scene where the genie makes chocolate bars fall like rain <laughs> Or the, you know, the one that uh, gave me nightmares of him squishing the gangsters into screaming human balls before dunking them. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is Shaq's career, underrated. He well, deserves we'll, a bigger we'll one. We'll do an episode. Yep. Blue Chips, Kazam, Steel. Haven't seen Steel. <laughs> I saw Steel. In theaters? No, on video. Oh, okay. Nobody saw it in theaters. <laughs> yeah, where it deserved to Steel go. Steel made like $2 million. Can you believe, can you imagine a superhero movie making that? And that's a film where they got scared about it being associated with Superman because of the time, I believe, Tim Burton's Superman Lives is supposed to come out. Right. So Shaq signed on to it, believing it was going to be a, like a Superman spinoff film because Steel was a character in the, oh God, Superman dies, Steel takes his place kind of thing. And at the last minute, they're like, nope, no Superman references. Why make this movie? I don't understand. Yeah. So if you have any questions or comments, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? We are talking once again about Jerry Lewis. Yes. The people demand it. Everyone loves it when we talk about Jerry Lewis. I love it when we talk about Jerry Lewis. So we're talking about his 1967 classic, The Big Mouth, newly released on Blu-ray. By Imprint Films under the label, The Columbia Films of Jerry Lewis. We kind of stick to that one period of Jerry so we talk about a lot of stuff we haven't mentioned in previous uh, Jerry adventures that we've had. So you can check that out. Uh, us talking about Jerry Badman Lewis, uh, the <laughs> Patreon, $5 a month, patreon.com slash the important cinema club. So next week, oh man, Will, we're, we're putting on our flak jackets and we're wandering in a dangerous tor- territory because we're talking about a Japanese director. You say this every time we talk about a Japanese director. You say that this is a cursed country for us. That we have, Well, we're, it's only cursed because I know that there's a lot of listeners out there that are like, well, they that was wrong. <laughs> That's incorrect. We did a very bad episode about Seijun Suzuki yes. a long time ago, and that has forever, I think, shaken us. <laughs> I feel that it's also like... That was our worst episode ever, by the uh, way. Uh, that especially 
especially, and I've said this before, like Japanese film fans, like they love it. They, mm-hmm. they love it a lot. Yeah. And I would say maybe the same way that, you know, I like Hong Kong stuff. And it's not, and I just don't have enough of a knowledge base to talk about it, especially because we're going to be talking about comedy, which I don't know how familiar you are with Japanese comedy beyond like, you know, you know, Katano I know, doing his thing. I know Beat Takashi. Yes. yes. That's it. Or, you know, you know, like the specific style of Japanese comedy that they're actually usually done in duos in Japan. Uh, that's something I'm like, oh, yeah, I did know that, but never really thought about that very much. So what's the name of the filmmaker? The filmmaker is Hitoshi Matsumoto. And he's an interesting filmmaker because he's made a handful of films. Have you seen Big Man Japan? Yes, I have. Symbol? No, I think I've only seen Big Man Japan. And he's also have R100. He also made a film about him being a comedian who has to make a young child laugh or he will be killed at the end of it. <laughs> Let me just say, it doesn't have the ending you think it will. But he's also a massive, massive star in Japan, especially television. You know, all those like funny clips you see of like, oh, look at these wild talk shows in Japan. They're usually comedians doing those shticks. And oftentimes it is Matsumoto. And I also thought about him recently because me and Emily started watching his show Documental, where it's a bunch of comedians in a room who they cannot laugh and they have to spend six hours in a room trying to make the other people laugh without laughing themselves. And have you seen Pie Hell? Will, have I ever shown you that? No. Where the, the gimmick is Matsumoto has to spend a normal day in his apartment as comedians stand around him smashing him with pies. <laughs> so he can't react. And he's like, it's time to read the newspaper. And he just holds up the newspaper and they're just smashing him with pies. <laughs> he can't react. Oh, you know, I'll send you that clip. We'll have to watch it. I think that Please. it's interesting as like a comedian that we don't associate that has had no real kind of like, you know, international success, but is huge in Japan. Also, very small filmography, so it's easy to discuss. Sounds great. So that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin, I'm looking at your DVD shelf, and I see you have a new release of Dead Heat, starring <laughs> Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. Is it time for a Piscopo Corner now? <laughs> Are we talking about Piscopo? Piscopo Corner. It was a different time in Hollywood back then. There were more stars, I think. Mm. Now, they're having a hard time making new stars. Because it's not a monoculture. It's not a monoculture anymore. That's why, you know, Pete Davidson will never leave us because he's the closest we've gotten to a star. Well, that's the SNL pipeline, right? Joe Piscopo went through the same way. The SNL is a big thing. Everybody knows this is what comedy is. Joe Piscopo's on SNL. Then he should be able to become a movie star in the uh, vein of a uh, John Belushi, for example. Well, what would happen for 40 years on SNL was they're on SNL. They get a movie. If the movie does well, they get more movies. They do a movie. It doesn't do well. They don't get more movies and they have to do something else. Uh, You become Chris Kattan if that's what happens to you. Or you could become Will Ferrell. (laughs) <laughs> or you could become Joe Piscopo. So, you know, I mean, Joe Piscopo by the early '90s was already a joke, as quoted in that famous Simpsons line, where it's like, "Ah, back in the '80s, where like Joe Piscopo was putting smiles on our faces." I'm maturing. Joe Piscopo <laughs> left Saturday Night Live. That's to a joke. Conquer <laughs> Hollywood. So he was on the seasons with Eddie Murphy. He was the number two guy. Number two, basically. Oh my God, what were his imitations? Frank Sinatra. Well, Sinatra, Bruce Springsteen, David Letterman. Mm. Uh, Phil Donahue. How was his Letterman? I mean, not that good. Not, that, right. not that good. So, no. are there good Joe Piscopo segments out there? Yeah, some of the ones that he's in with Eddie Murphy are good. As a straight interesting man. coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, especially. I mean, considering how his career would go, I don't think he'd be doing stuff with Eddie Murphy afterwards. Mostly based on the success, but also 
Other political leanings, if you will. Oh, yeah, that's right. Joe Piscopo is a right-wing talk show host now. Yes, he is. And good for him for making money. <laughs> yeah. Listen, <laughs> he looked at the landscape and had to make a decision and go, what am I going to do? This is where the money is. So Joe Piscopo, after he left SNL, you know, he's not a man who was ever very funny. He's like, imagine Jerry Lewis, all of his kind of... Imagine serious Jerry, but he couldn't be funny. So he's no Andrew Dice Clay then. Oh, he's no Andrew Dice Clay. I mean, he did, you know, come out swinging with a main role in the Michael Keaton classic, Johnny Dangerously. Yeah, I mean, he really tried to steal the show in that one. And obviously he was in Brian De Palma's Wise Guys. Which we did a Patreon episode on. Big showcase for Piscopo. And I guess those movies didn't quite do the business that they need to have done because he kind of got one more shot after that, which was definitely a B movie movie oh yeah definitely dead heat but dead heat came out and this is why i wanted to bring it up at the height of joe piscopo's bodybuilder era (laughs) yes it's if i can't be funny i'll be muscular that'll make the difference he was on the cover of various muscle magazines it's fun to watch some of his stand-up specials from the late 80s early 90s because he'd just be wearing like tank tops and muscle muscle shirts and it's like you know you're not very handsome yeah and he's also a very off-putting presence in dead heat so i kind of love him in dead heat because (laughs) he's so he's doing so many quips in that movie but like the movie's giving him nothing sometimes dead air after he says the quip i know well that's that's the pause where you're supposed to laugh yeah, you fill like it the Marx in. Brothers. Yeah, they toured the film to get where the moments are. You fill in the last. So, uh, man, I wish we had done a Patreon episode on Dead Heat because well, I have a lot of could. thoughts on Dead Heat. Well, I'll try to zoom through them now that we're here. But like Mark Goldblatt, who directed this film, he is probably one of the most famous editors when it comes to blockbusters ever. He did like James Cameron's film. After Dead Heat, he did like Terminator Two. He was like the go-to guy to do this kind of stuff. The year before Dead Heat came out, he made Dolph Lundgren's The Punisher, which was like this really wacky, almost Sam Raimi film. And then the next year, he makes Dead Heat, where you feel Mark Goldblatt being like, eh, I don't want to direct movies. Just put the camera down. Just film it. I mean, can you imagine spending two months listening to Joe Piscopo's quips? <laughs> oh, God. You probably want to get out of there as quick as possible. What I'll say about Dead Heat, though, is watching it, I watched it two days ago. It felt like the slickest Fred Olin Ray film ever made. <laughs> wow, that makes me want to watch it again. It's even got, like, Vincent Price as, like, the old actor showing up. The mm-hmm. only difference, Fred Olin Ray would have, like, put him in, like, a wig to make him look younger. Cause... And then Fred Olin Ray would have shot, like, a couple scenes that he could splice into 10 <laughs> other movies yes, that's right <laughs> And, oh man, I want to talk about Tree Williams, but we got to wrap it up. We have to save it for our next Joe Piscopo episode, I feel. Because, you know, what a uh, juicy sandwich that we can bite into, right? <laughs> Joe Piscopo. I think the best part is that Dead Heat comes out on like probably a $40 Blu-ray in 4K. And I'm like, yes, please. When <laughs> the people making it are like, we can't even get people to come out and see it for $5 in theaters. And they're paying this much money for it now. 